You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Our text today is from Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the death of Jesus Christ is the most perplexing and amazing event in almost all of human history. And why I say it's perplexing is because so many people look at a death and go like, how can anything good come from that? And how could a death of one person 2,000 years ago make any difference for my, how can it be good at all? We're not the first people to think this. In fact, the first disciples were the ones that struggled with his death, okay? They couldn't quite get it into their minds He even predicted it three times in the Gospels that he would die, and it just went right by them. They didn't get it, because they expected when the Messiah, which they believed Jesus was the Messiah, when he came into Jerusalem, what might happen is the death of God's enemies. The Romans would get kicked out. The Pharisees and the Sadducees who were running the show at the temple, they'd clean house, he'd set up his shop, he'd get rid of all of the corruption, and he'd set up a spiritual reformation, a spiritual renewal, a social renewal, and God would bring a little heaven on earth when the Messiah came. And when the Messiah came, And he entered into Jerusalem, and it was a great festive day, that Palm Sunday. Everything seemed to turn upside down and inside out for them after that moment. Because by the end of that week, he was being crucified by God's enemies, the Roman government. And he was being accused by the most religious and righteous people of the day, the most law-keeping people, the whole Sanhedrin said he was a blasphemer. And the mobs, the crowds, had all rejected and turned on him and mocked him. And he died, not just any death, but he died hanging on a cross. The most horrific, shameful, humiliating way to die they could think of. And in fact, According to the Bible, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. Therefore, he was even cursed by God on that cross. How could anything good come from this? They were devastated, not just perplexed. They were beside themselves. They were at a loss. And they themselves were implicated in all of it because they ran away. They fled. They betrayed. They denied. And they hid themselves. Now, it wasn't until the resurrection, that the penny dropped, that they started to figure it out, that they started to put some sense to it all, and then they were not just perplexed, but astounded and amazed at what God was actually accomplishing through the 
crucifixion. So after the resurrection, it started to come together. And that's in here in Romans 5, we see what God was actually accomplishing through the cross. And Paul interprets that event in two extremely important words. The first word that we're going to be looking at today is the word justification. And the second word, reconciliation. Now, before we get to that, though, well, I'll summarize what we're going to do, okay? Through the death of Jesus Christ... God justifies us and reconciles us to himself and to each other, creating a new community that is both universal and local. That's kind of the summary of what we're going to be talking about today. But before we kind of get into that more, I want to explain again, when we confess like we did before, the Apostles' Creed or a creed like this, what's going on? First of all, we're saying we're not teaching anything new today. If you hear ever any really new teaching In a Christian church, hmm, you better watch out. It may be new application, but it's the same gospel word that's been taught for 2,000 years, okay? So we're saying, hey, we believe what they've been believing, what they've been living for, what people have missionized for, died for, served for, given for, sacrificed for. We are in the same, we identify to millennia, an ancient modern a timeless truth of God's love in Jesus Christ. That's what we say. We also then have said we are rejecting all these wonderful narratives of the way that people say the world works and the way things are set up and what the purpose and meaning of life is. So when we say the creed, we're saying this is our story, this is our narrative, this is who we believe, and we reject all those other isms that we talked about. Some of them we've gone through, from individualism to nationalism, from moralism to hedonism, okay? All of those things we reject because they're different, quote, ways of saying, this is what the world's all about, this is what my life's all about, this is my purpose and meaning, but instead we say, this is our foundation, this and only this. Today, we're going to be saying, because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that we reject intellectualism. Now, we don't reject the intellect, okay? (laughs) The Bible says we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind as well as our strength and emotions and everything else. And we don't, and we are thinking people and God has given, given us great minds and rationality is something that is such a great gift of God, but we reject not the intellect or thinking, but intellectualism. That is, where we believe that if we just think the right things and We can figure out and solve every human problem possible just by getting it all down. This can be seen in technology at times. Technology becomes our salvation. Or education becomes the way that we're going to solve every problem in this world. And it can solve many things, but it can't solve the deepest human needs and the deepest human problems. I mean, we've got thousands of years of empirical evidence to say we've got some of the most brilliant people throughout history have tried to think through all the human problems and where are we at today? We still got them, don't we? They're all over the place. So we reject intellectualism as the answer. We also reject legalism. 
That is, that there is a set of rules that you and I, if we follow them, we kind of tip the scales in our favor. God then looks at us with favor and goes like, ah, these people are good enough for my kingdom and my grace and my mercy. That you can somehow get God to love you more by following the rules, whatever they happen to be. And we say no. It comes down to this phrase, and we find it in there, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, the words of the creed that just say that are kind of historical, just kind of boom, there it is. That's historically true. And and, uh, you know that Jesus actually did die. He didn't swoon. He didn't like fake it. He didn't like hang out for a while, look on the sunny side of life, you know, type of thing. Anybody see the life of Brian? No, okay. You know, that it was a real death and he was buried. And we can find this not simply from the scriptures, but outside of the scriptures, it's a historically provable fact of Jesus' death and burial. For instance, the uh, Roman historian Tacitus reports in 64 AD when Nero tried to blame the Christians for the burning of Rome, this is what... Tacitus wrote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that's death, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So we find out, historically, he died under Pontius Pilate by execution. The execution that Rome loved was putting him on a cross because it was the most painful, humiliating way to do it. Not just from the Romans, but we can find even from the Babylonian Talmud that the rabbinical literature, somewhere between 70 AD to 200, says this. On the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So the Sanhedrin wanted to stone Jesus to death, but they could not put the death penalty on someone. They had to have Rome do it. And Rome did it by crucifixion, so he was hung on a cross. Notice what they also said in this, that he was being accused of Sorcery. Do you know what? That's a kind of a backhanded way of saying he does miracles, but we just don't think it's by the hand of God. So they even agreed that he did miracles. Now, those are the historical things. We can get into that and we can look at that, but the cross of Jesus Christ is not about history per se. It's about the meaning behind it. What difference does it make? What spiritual historical difference, what does it do existentially for us? Okay? And that's why we're going to spend our time looking at that. And what I said is the cross of Jesus Christ reconciles us and justifies us. Those are the two key words that Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Now, last week, I think I said, we all know that there's something wrong with our human condition. Can we all agree on that? We're not all right There's something not quite right. I mean, you can look at the 
the history, you can look at the news, you can look at yourself in the mirror, and you know there's things that aren't quite right. You can look at your relationships, you know? Some might say, hey, well, you know, my marriage, it's been really tough, man, I just don't know how to do that, so there's something wrong there. Or you could say, hey, I'm struggling with an addiction, I just don't even, gosh, I feel so tempted to do and do and do, and I can't seem to stop. Or I, I really struggle with my anger, and I can't believe how angry I get, or I just worry so much, I just don't know what to do. We can look at it at a personal level like that, but something says something not quite right, and we haven't been able to fix it, and we haven't found the solution yet. The reality is that all of those things are significant, but they are symptoms of a deeper root problem that goes way to the core, and the creed, the scriptures say the root problem started when we who were created in the image of God to trust and love God and be in communion with him and fellowship with him and with each other in trusting, loving relationships. And when we said, no thanks God, we want to do it our way, and we became alienated and estranged and fearful and filled with guilt and shame because of that what we call sin. Guilt, you might say, I don't feel guilty. Really? You never have to defend yourself. You never are afraid somebody's going to find out something about you. Really? Shame, I don't feel ashamed. You never have to try to prove yourself. You never have to try. You always feel like you. You've made it. You're together. You're good. I don't think so. Be honest with yourself. We struggle with these things, and there's a reason for that. And what I'm saying really is behind these is everyone is seeking self-justification. Okay? Justification. That is, I'm looking for approval. I'm looking for acceptance. I'm looking for that I'm worthy, that I'm worth it, that I know who I am, that I, I have a reason. I, I feel like I need to prove my existence and why I'm here. Terry um, Warner says it this way in The Bonds That Make Us Free. Justification means trying to make something straighter to bring it into line. For example, we justify the text we are typing on a computer when we enter the command that straightens up both edges. Self-justification is like putting on glasses to make our crooked behaviors appear straight. And so often we do it, we don't even realize we're doing it. And there are so many different ways to do it. We know we're not perfect, we're not even close. We know that we don't quite have it together. We know that there's something wrong and that we sense a need to be right. We don't know if we've made the cut. We don't know if we are attractive enough. We don't seem significant in some way. And we try to justify ourselves, okay? And we know that we're trying to do this. This is what he also says. We struggle to portray ourselves in an ongoing personal story as worthy of approval and respect. The very fact that we need to struggle for approval proves that we do not approve of ourselves. Having to convince ourselves of something means we don't really believe it. That is why we contort ourselves grotesquely, lose sight of who we really are, and tangle ourselves pathetically in a complicated falsification of our lives. So we try to justify ourselves by a variety of ways. 
trees. And the logic ain't all that good either. You've seen them all. I've seen them all, I think, throughout this whole political season, I've seen every form of self-justification known to man. We're going to go through a few of them that we all personally use. The first one is better than. We might say, well, I've blown it. I've blown it. But at least I try harder than Jeremy over here. He's such a slacker. You know, you might not like my work, but boy, that person over there, right? Or I might say, hey, I told a lie, but I'm not an axe murderer. Have you ever heard people kind of talk that way? They're using self-justification technique of at least I'm better than you. <laughs> okay, another way we do it is we pity ourselves and we then say we're worse than everybody. Now, that seems like a backhanded way of doing it, but what we're really saying is I just can't do anything right I'm a, such a loser. I'm a flub up. And we kind of then are looking for other people to justify ourselves. Oh, come on, bring it on. Tell me, oh, I'm such a flub up. And what do I look for? It's like, oh, no, you're not. You're good. You're wor- you, you, you see how that works, right? This is funny. Storm Jameson, an author, says this. There is much vanity in self-scourging as in self-justification. Yeah, we're so centered on ourselves. It really doesn't matter. We're stuck on ourselves through both of these ways. We remain self-centered, looking for pity or mercy from other people, and it's another backhanded way of trying to justify. I want to feel so bad about myself, then I feel good. Isn't that weird? But we do it. We do it. Third way, we blame shift. Well, I might have said that, but you are the one that made me so angry because I can't believe what you did. Have you ever, right? We just shift the blame to someone else. It works so much better. Hey, I'm, but, you know, point the finger the other way. Fourthly, we justify by creating a martyr complex. (gasps) Oh, but look at all I've sacrificed for you. Look at what I have done. Look at all of this. Isn't it just, I might have blown it here, but it's just, you know. Those are just four of the ways. We could probably go into a lot more, but we don't have enough time to do that. Okay? Uh, Michael Foley says, when it comes to justifying actions, every human being acquires the intelligence of an Einstein, the imagination of a Shakespeare, and the subtlety of a Jesuit. We can figure it out, and we're doing it all the time. Now, why did I say that intellectualism and um, legalism are things that we do not, uh, that we are saying we are rejecting? It's because they're actually forms of self-justification. You know, there was an early church heresy called Gnosticism, which is knowledge was our problem. And Jesus came as the great revealer to the world. And if we understand and if he reveals to us the truth, it's not his death on the cross. No, he reveals the fact that we are already one with God. In fact, God lives in us. And if I just come to the intellectual understanding that I am already united with God, the material world and the yucky world around me just kind of fades away and I receive release, and I am, and it sounds so good and so close to the gospel, but it isn't. Intellectualism is saying, I can think my way into salvation. 
just self-justifying, that it's really not that bad, I can solve it by just the way I think. And legalism is another form of self-justification. It's kind of that better than in some ways, you know? Legalists often are very hard on other people, but they think God grades on a curve for them. It kind of reminds me of an old, uh, uh, an old illustration I used to hear about. It's kind of like uh, a legalist believes he can jump the Grand Canyon, okay? He's going to find a technique to do it. So basically what happens is the other side, the chasm that's been created by the fact that I have alienated myself from God, I've rebelled, I've done things that are wrong, this chasm between God and humanity as such, but I think I'm going to do it by following certain rules, by doing better, being more sincere, by practice, 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 and so I devise a method. And my method is I'm going to skateboard to the other side. I'm going to build a ramp and build a whole method in my life that I'm going to take off and fly and get to the other side. And the day comes when I've coached myself, I've practiced, I've disciplined myself, I've done everything that I can human possibly do, and I take off and I'm sailing through the air, looking back at all those people who are so much worse than me that are just kind of jumping off the edge and falling to their death. And I look back and say, well, at least I tried harder than them as I myself plummet into the abyss. That is legalism. It doesn't work. Do you get it? It just doesn't work. So, it's the nature for us to try to figure out a way, whether it's legalism, intellectualism, rationalism, or the better than, or the worse than, or the martyr complex, or the blame shift. It is by nature, we're always trying to find justification. Alexander Zoltzenitsyn said, it's in the nature of human beings to seek justification for their actions. The problem is we're always looking in the wrong place. We always turn it back to ourselves. We're always trying to figure it out. How am I going to when God is the one who does it? And the creed says, look to Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He and he alone is your justification. Don't look at yourself, but look to Jesus. Do you realize this? Do you know why Jesus died? Because we were trying to justify ourselves. We've been trying to justify ourselves since the Garden of Eden. We're trying to say, no thanks God, I can handle it, I can do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm, I need your help, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to need a little help, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. No thanks, no thanks, no thanks. And Jesus comes into this world to die for the people who are actually saying, I'm going to do it without you, in some form, I'm going to do it, no thanks. Do you realize when he died on the cross, he didn't die at the hands of the worst people in the world? He was accused by the best, by the most religious, the most moral, the most upright citizens and people that have ever existed, the religious elite in Jerusalem. And he died at the hands of the government, the Roman government, that said they were spreading peace 
through their methods. He didn't die at the hands of the worst. He died at the hands of the best of humanity. And in so doing, he shows and exposes us for what we really are. We get to see what our goodness does, our sense of justice, our sense of right and wrong. It kills the Son of God. Now, the Bible's pretty clear, not just in that event, but elsewhere. We're not so good. Even when we think we're good, we're not that good. Okay? So Paul writes in Romans 3, just before this passage, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's pretty blunt. He's actually quoting the Old Testament there, a number of Psalms. It's not just the first time God has said this. He said this again and again and again. It just doesn't sink in. Oh, no, we're okay. We're, we're not that bad. We're not, okay, okay, you know. But the point is, Every time I try to say I'm not that bad, I'm justifying myself or trying to compare myself to someone else or doing some form of self-justification from blame shift to, oh, at least I'm better than Lisa over here, you know, that type of thing. At least I'm more sincere, you know. At least I've tried compared to you. And it just doesn't work. Hey, at least I'm not an axe murderer. Yeah, right. But I might not have killed someone with my bare hands, but I do covet. Let me tell you, I know I do that. And this is what James says. He puts it bluntly, too. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Doesn't matter. Okay? I'm guilty. I've fallen short. I'm not good by the standards that God uses. Now don't despair about that. I think this is the balance and the perspective that Paul had about his own life, and I think we should. And that is from 1 Timothy 1. Where he says, a saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I think that's not just true for Paul, even though he'd look at it because he persecuted the church, and he was doing it out of his own self-righteousness and his own self-justification. The point is, in my circumstances, with the upbringing I had, with all the privileges I had in the small town life I had in Michigan, with everything that was given to me over time, from education to you, you name it, the models that I had, I have messed up royally. And then on top of that, I've made the most mess I could of it, and the only reason I haven't done worse is because I don't have the opportunities often to do it, and yet the worst on top of it is to think that I did this myself and how good I am, because do you understand? I'm chief of sinners. I think we're all there. But Paul doesn't stop with that. He says, he doesn't even start with that. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the balance we're looking for. The most unjust act that's ever happened, that Jesus Christ would be accused and blasphemed 
and nailed to a cross and treated as a criminal and as the worst of sinners, that that unjust act becomes my justification. He takes all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, everything into himself and instead gives us his righteousness so that you are declared righteous and perfect and flawless and whole and complete. Jesus didn't die for you because you were good. He didn't die for you because you're sort of good. He doesn't die for you because you're going to become good. He dies for you, as Romans 5 says, look it up, because you were a sinner and you were godless. That's what it says. You got to be a sinner for Jesus. That's what's so amazing about Jesus Christ. So Paul David Tripp says, when your sin is exposed, you'll either run towards confession and forgiveness, which we're really talking about today, or self-righteousness and self-justification. And I'm saying, and the creed says, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Every day, all the day, all the time. So Jesus Christ, through his death, not only justifies us, it says he reconciles us to God. And what I'm amazed about in this is that he turns God's enemies into friends. Do you know the number one accusation against Jesus during his life, during his 30 years, is that he was a friend of sinners, you know? That he partied with the harlots and the prostitutes and he healed and touched the lepers that they thought caused their leprosy because of their sins. And he even had tax collectors. And do you realize tax collectors were about as low as you could go, the scum of the earth. They might as well have been a mafia don in those days because they betrayed their own people to the Romans and they ripped them off and extorted from them. There was nothing, and Jesus had the gall and the audacity to hang out with them, and not only that, but to call one of them one of his 12 disciples, Matthew. And the intellectuals couldn't believe it, that he would be with such uneducated, and the legalists couldn't stand it because he was condoning that kind of immorality. But that's who he's about. That's why Matt Chandler of the Village Church says, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world is great. John 3, 17, it's just as good because it says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he doesn't do it like, oh, I got to do it. Let's get through this. This is just terrible. Look at me. He doesn't do a martyr complex, and he doesn't blame shift and say, you made me do it. And he doesn't try to justify. He just willingly does it. I love this from um, Reggie Kidd. He says, Jesus didn't coldly settle accounts for us. He doesn't bark us into improving ourselves. He united himself in glorious communion. He has enjoyed for eternity with his heavenly Father. He resides within us to heal the broken places and refresh cauterized hearts. He sings us into a new mode of existence. That is reconciliation. He treats us as we don't deserve as friends. You are reconciled. God has justified you through the death of Jesus. He has reconciled you. 
So let's put that now through the lens that we've done every week. Clarity and balance and belonging. First, clarity. Maybe today you came here, um, but you were kind of going like, I don't know if I should come. I'm not really up to it. Um, As if you have to be worthy to come into church then maybe you didn't hear what I've been saying for the last 20 or 30 minutes. Jesus hangs out with sinners. That's all this is. He's hanging out with sinners today. You have been justified. It's all about him. That's the clarity. Get out of your mind that you are the exception or the asterisk that, yeah, I know he died for the sins of the world, but there is no sin that is so horrendous or so terrible that the Power of the cross does not overcome it. There is nothing in all of creation that could overcome the power of the cross. Period. You are justified. And for balance, maybe you're going like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not so sure about this. So on the one hand, The cross doesn't excuse sin. It exposes sin. It doesn't say, oh, that's okay. Just keep on doing it. That's fine. No problem. That was Gnosticism. That was the intellectualism. That as if it doesn't matter, God is already there. No, the cross shows how bad it was, how bad it is that the wrath of God was placed upon the Son, Jesus Christ, instead of you and me. It was so bad, he had to do that, and he did it. So sin is that bad. But God is that good, and we have that balance, so we don't wallow in our sins, okay, and hang out in them, okay? And we don't excuse it either. We focus on God's amazing grace time and again. And that brings us to belonging, okay? You've been reconciled to God. You've been justified. And that means you really belong. We are a family of grace. There are 51 different verses in the New Testament that say love one another, prefer one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, confess to one another. And we can't go through all of them, but basically the justification and the reconciliation you have in Jesus Christ makes us a family where this is the way we can live. We are the family that can be there for each other. We belong here. You belong in this family. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it aptly. He said, self-justification and judging others go together as justification by grace and serving others go together. Get it? So when I don't have to justify myself anymore, when I can be real with you, when I can let myself be who I am because of what I've received in Jesus Christ, then I can serve you because I don't have to waste my time trying to one-up you or better than you or worse than you or become the martyr or any of that stuff. That, that's wasted energy. Now I can serve you, I can care about you, I can look and focus on you. And we can be about grace. Now, that doesn't mean Christian community is easy. It's tough. It can be very tough, you know? I can get on your nerves, and you can get on mine. But we are still family And we can see each other through the lens of grace. We are reconciled. 
And we can be about that reconciliation. The family. So, clarity, balance, and belonging. Because Jesus was, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the time that we are together here. For just focusing for a a chance on the cross and what you've done. It's not just a historical event, but you've changed our whole history. Our personal story has now become enmeshed with yours, Lord Jesus. You have declared us righteous. We are not guilty. We are freed. We are forgiven. Help us, Lord, when we struggle with this, to rely on your grace more and more, not to dwell on our sin, but on your righteousness, not to dwell on our guilt, but on your grace, not to focus simply on our rebellion, but on your amazing mercy and the fact that you have reconciled us. We pray, Lord, for anyone here today who has doubted or struggled with this, that you would just have brought it more clearly to them. Holy Spirit, work in them. So that becomes the center of our being, the core of who we are, knowing that we are justified and we are reconciled all through the historic, absolute death of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, as we look forward to speaking and celebrating the resurrection, that that we know that you are here for us right now. All this we pray in Jesus' name.